0: Well, good morning again and welcome to Coleman First Baptist Church. I'm so delighted to get to be with you today. Pastor Tom is uh, enjoying some vacation time with his family, and I'm so honored that he's entrusted me to bring God's Word to you today. We're going to do something a little different this morning, a little awkward maybe. I'm going to ask all of you, just right where you're sitting, just kind of close your eyes. We're going to do the invitation first this morning. I'm just kidding. We're not going to do that. But if you would, imagine with me for just a moment, with your eyes closed there, that this is now your new permanent existence. You wake up one morning and it feels like sleepy, is caked all in your eyes, and you, you rub and you rub and you, you strain your eyes, and in your best efforts, you can see only a blurred image of what it once was. You cry out for help from someone in your house to come and help you. You immediately, you call and you make a doctor's appointment. You find the best ophthalmologist that you can find. They run test after test after test, and the results come back, untreatable, inoperable, permanent, you'll never see again. You break down and you cry and you beg and you plead and you ask God why. You experience all the natural stages of grief. In that moment, the desperation, the despair that you would feel, what would you give for your sight? Would you give everything you own to see again? Maybe everything you would ever own? Would you offer your life service that you might regain your sight? As time goes on, maybe you begin to adapt and adjust to your new situation of life. And over time, maybe you begin to lose hope that you'll ever see again. It doesn't feel so great. It feels very desperate. You can open your eyes. Thank you for that. This is the exact condition of the central character of our story today. John chapter 9 is the story of a man born blind. Now, John's Gospel gives us uh, some unique insight uh, into six different miracles that Jesus performs that's not found in any of the other synoptic Gospels. Because of this, many uh, scholars give John's Gospel the title of the Maverick Gospel. We know John's best nickname, though, probably comes from uh, when Jesus on the cross, it says, the one whom Jesus loved, the disciple whom Jesus loved. John was the only one mentioned from among his 12 disciples that was there when Jesus was being crucified. He looks down and he sees his mom in such anguish and such despair, and he says, woman, behold your son. Son, behold your mom. And the Bible says that from that time on, John took Jesus' mother into his home and took care of her. When John chapter 9 picks up, Jesus has already performed no fewer than five miracles, He's turned the water to wine at the wedding in Cana. He's been in Cana a second time and he heals a royal servant's son who's all the way over in Capernaum, over 16 miles away from where Jesus is. He kind of heals him wirelessly, if you will. He heals a paralytic at the pool of Bethesda on the Sabbath, which kind of brings some persecution from the Jews. He feeds the 5,000, he walks on water. And here in John chapter 9, Jesus had just gotten himself in some really hot water with the Pharisees. Just prior to this, it was the, uh, the Feast of Tabernacles. It was the great feast, of the eighth day of the feast. Jesus goes into the temple and he gives the great speech. He says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and streams of living water will flow from him. The next morning, he goes back into the temple again, and this is where the Pharisees try to trap him. They bring the woman caught in adultery, and uh, they sit her before him. And uh, Jesus dismisses her after all of her accusers leave, with the great line of, "Hey, let he who is without sin cast the first stone." Well, he continues to have a conversation with the Pharisees, and he tells them that he is the light of the world. He tells them that he's from above, that they are from below that they are not children of God, they are not sons of Abraham. He tells them, in fact, you are children of the devil. I can't imagine why this would have made them upset. But what he says next is what really gets them angry. They're arguing with him. They say, well, how could you have seen Abraham? You're not even 50 years old. And Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. The disciples, I mean, the Pharisees immediately knew what he was saying. They knew that he was claiming to be God. They would have recognized and remembered Moses in the burning bush. When he's hearing from God in the burning bush, he questions God. and He says, hey, what shall I say to the children of Israel when I tell them that the God of their fathers has sent me to them? And they ask me, well, what is his name? God responds, tell them, I am has sent you. I am. This is where we get the Hebrew word Yahweh way. I am or I will be. It signifies the eternal nature of God. And here, don't get it mistaken, Jesus is claiming to be the eternal incarnate Son of God. He's saying, I am God in the flesh. I am here on the scene. And the Pharisees pick up rocks. They're going to stone him. They're going to kill him. And what happens at the end of chapter 8 is kind of astonishing to me. Jesus, the Bible says that he hid himself among them and exited through the temple grounds. Now, how someone can physically hide themselves directly in front of their accusers is kind of beyond me. So in my creative, sanctified, born-again imagination, I like to imagine it as kind of like smoke bomb ninja style Jesus. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know. This probably isn't how it happened, but I like to imagine just, ooh, he's gone. and Everyone's looking around like, where did he go? What just happened? Now, the Bible doesn't give us clearly about how that happens, but you know, like to imagine a little bit. And what happens next in the first part of chapter 9 is remarkable and applicational to us today. John chapter 9, verse number 1. We don't know how much time is taking place from the end of chapter 8 when he flees the temple. We don't know how much time has transpired, but we know this is the very next verse in John's gospel. John 9, verse 1, it says, As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. Now, the first point uh, for us this morning is Jesus sees. Jesus sees. Now, I don't know like Jesus had a real problem. The Pharisees were trying to kill him, right? Just in the in the, in the chapter right before they picked up stones, they were going to try to kill him, and in verse 9, uh, verse 1 of chapter 9, it doesn't say that Jesus ran and went into hiding. It doesn't say that he ran off and quarantined himself from the world. It says, as he went along, as he continued along the path, as he continued his journey, the application for us is that we, we do not allow our problems to overshadow our purpose. Jesus did not allow the problem that the, that the Pharisees were literally trying to kill him to overshadow the purpose that he had come for. Literally, as he went along, as he continued along the path, he saw a man blind from birth. He saw a man born blind. Now when suffering strikes, I know for me personally, I don't know about you, but when suffering strikes me personally, I can get this tunnel vision. Right, where all I can see is the problem in front of me. All I can see is my own pain. All I can see is what's going on in my life. I, it's kind of a self-pity can easily come up, and, and it kind of hinders me from being able to see the needs of those around me whenever suffering strikes, maybe when things like this pandemic come into our lives, and oh, man, all we can see is taking care of our own family. All we can see is providing for our own family. All we can see is protecting our own people. And it's very easy for us to get this tunnel vision and lose sight of the reality that God has given us a purpose to make minister and reach the needs of those people around us. But Jesus here doesn't do that. You see, pain sometimes in our lives does one of two things. It will either kind of draw us away from the things of God. It will draw us into self-pity. It will draw us into this kind of feeling sorry for ourselves, kind of maybe mad at God, maybe blaming God. God, why have you allowed this to happen? Or it will do just the opposite and it will drive us towards him. One of Pastor Tom's very good friends you guess it, C.S. Lewis um, says it this way. He said, pain plants the flag of truth in the fortress of a rebel soul. Pain plants the flag of truth in the fortress of a rebel soul. Sometimes suffering comes in our life, pain comes in our life, just to help reimagine or refocus our, our, our attention towards God. Don't get it mistaken, suffering... Universal suffering uh, is directly connected to, to sin, the problem of sin, and the fallen condition, the fallen nature of the world that we live in. Things like sickness and death and disease and famine and tornadoes and hurricanes, universal suffering, pandemics, these things are directly connected to the problem of sin and the fallen nature of the world. However, individual suffering is not always directly connected to individual sin. We ask questions like, well, God, what did I do to deserve this? God, why is this happening to me? And, we, and, and what we're missing is that sometimes, well, yeah, granted, sometimes in our lives we make dumb decisions, we make mistakes, we sin, and we face the consequences of that sin. That's true. But it's not always the case. Individual suffering is not always connected to individual sin, and Jesus clarifies that here uh, in verse number 3. He says, neither this man's sin nor his parents' sin, said Jesus, but it happened so the work of God might be displayed in his life. Uh, Pastor Skip Heitzing says it this way. He says, nothing happens to you, it happens for you and for those around you. Do you know what the credentials are to be able to help someone who's experienced suffering? Suffering. The only way you can physically help somebody who's going through some difficulty, who's experienced some challenging times in their lives, who's experienced pain and real suffering, is you've got to go through some stuff. There's a story of a man named Daniel Kish that I believe is very inspiring. Daniel uh, was born with a rare cancer, a disease called retinoblastoma. It's a cancer of the retinas, and it attacks the retinas and causes vision loss. When Daniel was just over a year old, he had to have an emergency surgery, a life-saving operation to remove both of his eyes. Daniel grows up, and rather than live a life of self-pity and dependency upon everyone else, Daniel perfects an art called human echolocation. Now this is very similar to how dolphins use sonar, human echolocation, you create a sound, usually a click with a tongue, a, and you listen for the, for the echo of that sound to be able to form uh, shapes and be able to form your surroundings of the world around you. Daniel perfected this so much so that by the time he was 18, he literally rejected any kind of caregiver. He lived depend, independently on his own and he wouldn't even use one of the little walking canes that blind people use. He wanted to live completely independent upon himself. Now, yeah, that's fascinating, that's great, but what's even more inspiring to me is that Daniel, he had trained and his leadership had helped to train over 500 blind people to help learn the art of human echolocation. Daniel took his problem and did not allow his problem to pull him away from his purpose, but allowed his problem to define his purpose and to propel him towards it. He used his problem of blindness to develop this... this, um, to perfect, rather, this idea, this, this concept, this technique of being able to see the world through sound. And he trained over 500 people to be able to do the same thing, to have a better life, to live more independently, to experience the world around them. Suffering is not meant, it doesn't happen to us, it happens for us. Second Corinthians chapter 1 says this, listen to this about suffering. It says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles, so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. For just as the sufferings of Christ flow over into our lives, so also through Christ our comfort overflows. If we are distressed, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance to the same sufferings we suffer. And our hope for you is firm. Because we know that just as you share in our suffering, so also you will share in our comfort. This is the very thing that makes Jesus such a good high priest and intercessor on our behalf. He experienced a tremendous amount of suffering. Everything from grief and loss to betrayal and abandonment and slander and gossip and social injustice and sickness and even death. He was murdered. He can can sympathize with us in our weaknesses. And I believe that God has given us these things in our lives. Sometimes suffering and pain comes to our lives to help point our attention and our focus back towards God and also helps us to understand that our purpose is to not, not live in our suffering, but to help other people in theirs. Jesus sees. The second point I want you to see is Jesus acts. Jesus acts. Look what happens here. He says, Neither this man nor his parents sin." said Jesus... But this happened so the work of God might be displayed in his life. Now, in ancient Jewish theology, there was this theology of theodicy. The the theology of theodicy was kind of this idea of how to deal with the problem of suffering. If there's a good, loving, all-powerful God, how does he permit suffering and evil to exist? Now, this is a challenging uh, conversation maybe you've had with people you've shared your faith with, try to help understand what the gospel is all about. And they kind of believed in this idea. It was wrong. They believed in this idea of prenatal sin. They believed that uh, it kind of stemmed all the way back from this ancient Greek philosophy uh, of the preexistence of the soul. They thought either if you were born with some defect or some issue, then you were either, um, you either sinned in the womb somehow, or maybe it was because of some sin of a previous life. And Jesus here is going to debunk all of this. He shows us this is untrue. And so they asked this question, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? They wanted to have a, a conversation. They made this guy uh, a topic of conversation Rather than an object of their compassion. And here we see Jesus, he's not going to have it. He's not going to have a theological discussion. He's going to give them a practical demonstration. Jesus acts here. He says, uh, neither this man sinned nor his parents, but that the work of God might be displayed in his life. Verse 4, as long as it is day, we must do the work of him who sent me. Night's coming when no one can work. While I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. Now, real quickly, many scholars believe that little dialogue from Jesus there is referring to his time on the cross. The Bible says, from the sixth to the ninth hour, darkness fell upon the land that the sun couldn't even shine uh, while the Son of God was being crucified for the sins of many. Uh, Many scholars debate on that, but verse 6 is where we want to get to. Jesus acts, having said this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Now, remember, the man is blind but he's not deaf, right? Like he's sitting here. The disciples are coming along. Hey, Jesus, who sinned, this guy or his parents? that he was born blind. The guy's like, I'm right here. I can hear you, you know? And Jesus does something uh, amazing. He, he literally begins to spit on the ground. Now, I don't want to be too gross this morning, but it would take a lot of saliva to make enough mud to cover two eyeballs. And I can't help but to wonder, like, what everybody's thinking. Like, what are the disciples thinking? Like, I don't know how loud the mud making process was. I don't know if it was just like a, you know, or just a. I mean, I have no idea how much Jesus leaned into it. But the disciples had to be wondering, what is he doing? The blind guy. I mean, like I said, I don't know how loud it was, but maybe he was. Wondering what's going on as Jesus rubs the mud. Maybe he thought it was some nice, expensive ointment that this guy's putting on my eyes. Or maybe if he heard Jesus, he was probably like, "Oh no, I know he ain't about to do what he's about to do." And oh yeah, happens. Spreads his spreads mud on his eyes, and he tells the guy, "Now go wash in the pool of Siloam." He's like, "Yeah, of course, Jesus. I'm gonna go wash. You just put mud in my eyes." Now the pool of Siloam uh, was a was a pool that. King Hezekiah had made uh, come from the Gihon Springs. And King Hezekiah literally dug a tunnel from the springs all the way into the lower part of the city and built this pool so people could come and gather water. It was also the place where the priests would have been washing themselves at the Feast of Tabernacles. So when Jesus tells this guy to go wash, he doesn't send him privately to his home. He sends him to a public place. He sends him to a place where everyone would see the deliverance, where everyone would see the healing, where it would be publicly shown that what Jesus did for this guy, and I believe for us in our lives, what God does for us, when he acts on our behalf, I believe it's for the world around us. I believe it's so that people can see his works and give him glory. Jesus acts. I don't know about you, but I wonder, like, why heal him this way? Why heal the man this way? Like, why not just spoken word heal him like he did uh, the paralytic at Bethesda? Why not? I mean, he healed the guy wirelessly from 16 miles away. Why not just, you're healed? Why not just put his clean hands on the guy's face and heal him? Every miracle Jesus performs is to show his deity, to show that he is the Son of God, the Messiah. Pastor Tom taught us in his series on John, and John 20 is kind of the thesis for this whole book. It says, I have written these things so that you may believe that Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. And here I believe Jesus is demonstrating to us and to the world that he is the Lord over all creation. All the way back in Genesis, it says that that God took the dust of the ground and formed man from the dust of the ground. And here we see Jesus take that same dust and within the mud fashion a brand new set of eyeballs for this man. And as he goes and he washes away the dirt of his former way of life, washes away. And he begins to see clearly for the very first time the grace and the glory and the beauty and the majesty of God in all his creation. Lord over creation. No matter what's going on in your life today, no matter what situations you're in, no matter what circumstances you face, the difficulties we all face in this life, we serve a God. We serve a Lord who is creator. Just as he spoke and spun creation into existence all the way back in Genesis in our lives today, this morning, he can create something new in your life. There is no situation without hope. There is no circumstances that our God cannot reach, cannot touch, cannot heal, cannot restore. Here we see him heal this blind man kind of grossly, but showing us, hey, I can do anything. Jesus acts. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. Now we're going to skip ahead a little for time here, but what happens next? uh, The guy, literally, he's, he's healed from his blindness. He's there in public place. And, and all the people that see him, that formerly knew him, they're demanding, oh, tell us how you were healed, what happened? And he tells them, and they didn't they didn't buy it, so they literally drug him off to the Pharisees. And the Pharisees are doing the same thing, they're questioning him. And honestly, the Pharisees thought he was a phony. But he tells them, Hey, this man they called Jesus, made some mud, put it on my eyes, I went and washed it, now I can see. They're like, we're not buying it either. They, they literally drug his parents into court, if you will. They drug his parents in to question them. Hey, is this your son? Is it true he was born blind? Can you tell us how he can now see? Now, this guy has some pretty sorry parents. If you think you're a bad parent, these parents take the cake. If you think your parents are bad, y'all just take a lesson right here from these guys, okay? These parents, not only did they force their son to a life of begging... They weren't providing for him. He was a beggar in the streets. But when they're questioned about their son, they said, yeah, we know he's our son. At least they claimed him, I guess. And we know he was born blind. But how he can now see, we don't know. He's of age. Ask him. The Bible says they did this because they were afraid of the Pharisees. Because the Pharisees had already said, anybody who claims Jesus is the Messiah is going to be kicked out of the synagogue. And in those days, to be kicked out of the synagogue was to be excommunicated from society and from the family of faith. It wasn't, oh, just go home and quarantine yourself and wear a mask and stay six feet apart. It was, hey, you go away, you lose your house, your family, your job, your social status, everything. You're not welcome here, and God doesn't want you. It was horrendous. And this guy could have easily told them what they wanted to hear. But our application from this is stay true to your testimony. Stay true to your testimony. Look what he says in verse uh, 24. It says, A second time they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God, they said. We know this man is a sinner. Talking about Jesus. In verse 25, he replied, Whether he is a sinner or not, I do not know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. These words inspired the beautiful hymn John Newton wrote in the late 1700s, We all know and love amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. This man knew that to lie and to not give God the glory that he deserved, to not acknowledge Christ as doing this great miracle in his life would be to. To, uh, to hinder from people to experiencing the glory and the power of God through Jesus. And the same is true in our lives as Christians, as believers, as followers of Christ. Whenever we try to display to the world this perfect image that, hey, I'm a Christian, I'm a believer, everything's great, everything's good, my life's all put together, I don't have any problems, I don't have any issues. Not only are we lying, but we're being untrue to our testimony and we're hindering people from experiencing the fullness of God's grace and His love. They desperately need to hear that, hey, I'm a believer, I'm a Christian, I've been saved by God's grace, but the reality is I don't have it all figured out. I don't have it all together all the time, and sometimes I make mistakes, and sometimes I fall short, and sometimes I downright sin, but God's grace and his love is there. His mercies are new every morning. I can repent and turn from that. He'll forgive me. He's my hope. It's not our goodness that makes us right with God, and it's not our goodness that keeps us right with God. We are saved by His grace, we are changed by His grace, and we are sustained every single day by His grace. It's only because of what He done for us that we have a right position with God. And the world desperately needs to hear us staying true to that testimony that we are lost sinners, hopeless, in need of salvation, and the only way that we could come to Him was because of what He did for us. Stay true to our testimony. Now, the guy has some more dialogue here, and it don't turn out too well. Uh, he's kind of kind of giving on the business, if you will. He says, look, uh, you know, they hurled insults at him and said, you're this fellow's disciple. The man answered down in verse 30. He says, now that's remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly man who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a blind man before, a man born blind, if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And this is it. It's the last straw. To this they replied, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. They cast him out. Rejected by the society of men. Rejected by the religious leaders. And what Jesus does next, our third teaching point today, is Jesus pursues. Jesus pursues. Pursues. Look what happens in verse 35. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out. Now, I don't know if Jesus heard like, you know, from word of mouth. We see many times in Jesus' ministry, people are grumbling, maybe talking about something in a corner, and Jesus just straight up addresses it right in front of them. Like he literally knows what's going on in our minds. He knows our every thought, our every action, our every attitude. And here we see, however it happened, Jesus heard they threw him out. And when he found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Rejected by the society of men, accepted by the Son of God. When you think no one cares, when you think you don't matter, Jesus pursues you. Jesus came after this man. He sought him out. He found him, and he asked him this question. Do you believe in the Son of Man? Now remember, this blind man had never seen Jesus up to this point, right? He was blind when Jesus put the mud on his eyes. He was blind when he went to the pool. He washed and became clean. And he doesn't see Jesus again. And and here he says, Jesus said to him, after he says in verse 36, Well, who is he, sir? The man asked, Tell me that I may believe in him. Jesus said, You have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with Jesus gives us great insight here. The man had not seen Jesus. The man had only heard about him. When the Pharisees questioned him, he said, "Oh, yeah, the man they call Jesus. Well, what do you say about? Him? Well, he's a prophet. And here we see he's about to call him Lord. He's it's kind of the the uh, tra- the um, the transition, if you will, in- into this guy's uh, f- saving faith." Uh, what happens is Jesus heals the guy physically from his physical uh, sickness, his physical disease of blindness, not just so that he can know about him, not so that he can just experience a healing touch from him, but so that he can see his face. Yeah, Jesus helps us in our lives. He, He blesses us and he protects us and he watches over us and he heals us from our diseases and our sicknesses. But don't get it wrong. All of the physical things that God does in our lives through Christ are only to show us the spiritual need, the spiritual healing, the spiritual blindness that's taking place that he wants to desperately heal us from. It wasn't enough for Jesus just to physically heal this man. He wanted to show him his face. He wanted to know him more personally. He wanted to know him intimately. Jesus pursues him that the man might know him. The man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. How do we know this is what happened? Jesus said, For judgment I come into the world so that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. Now maybe you're thinking, Oh, this is a cool story. Like Jesus did an awesome thing for this blind man. He healed him physically, and then he went and, you know, helped him to receive him in salvation. But the truth this morning is, we are the blind man. We are the central character in today's message. Every single one of us born blind into sin, born into a condition that we could do nothing about. You didn't become a sinner the first time you sinned and did something wrong. You sinned because you were born by your nature into sin as a sinner. I didn't have to teach my one year old son to be bad, he does it all by himself. Jesus saw us in our condition of sin. He saw us in our broken condition of spiritual blindness. Jesus acted in human history by taking on flesh and coming to the earth and offering himself as a sacrifice. He took on the condition of sin so that we could take on the position of righteousness before God. He went to the place that he didn't deserve to go so that you and I get to live in the place that we don't deserve to be. He saw us. He acted on our behalf. He pursued us. He pursued us like a woman would look for a lost piece of jewelry in her house. Ladies, you ever lost an earring, a wedding ring, a diamond? Like you will comb the house over. You will, you will move everything. Like a farmer, maybe that would search his fields for a cow or a sheep that's kind of went missing. Like a small child, maybe would look for a, their favorite toy that's that they've lost. Search everywhere. I hear people say, Well, when I found the Lord, the Lord wasn't lost. We were. He found us. He pursued us. He saved us. We respond to Him in faith. We believe in Him. He pursued us. He revealed Himself to us in His perfect love when He stretched out His arms on Calvary's cross, taking on sin. He offers us forgiveness from our sin, the hope of eternal life in him. Not because we deserve it. Are you kidding? Not because we're good people or we've somehow done this good stuff. But because of his great love for us. Because of who he is. He sees us in our broken condition. He acts on our behalf when we couldn't. He pursues us and he reveals himself to us. Dear friends today, he wants you to know him. He don't want you just to know about him. He don't want you just to experience something from him, maybe in like corporate worship. He wants you to see his face. We see him because he saw us. We act in service to him because he acted on our behalf. We pursue him every single day because he pursued us. And we reveal to him and to other people the brokenness of our lives because he revealed to us his perfect love. So, what's our response? Do you remember when I asked you to imagine you were blind? Do you remember how the desperation you sensed? Do you remember what you were willing to give up to receive your sight? Everything you own, everything you would ever own, your life service. The final application for us today is that we should desire Jesus like a blind man desires sight. We should long for him. We should want him as much today as we did the day we looked to him for salvation. We need him as much in this moment as we did the moment we first met him. We need to be made more like Him. We need to be made more like His image. I don't know about you, but for me, like Paul said, I have to die daily to my flesh. If Christians lose their zeal, their desire for Jesus, if somehow getting saved and having eternal life, if somehow that's enough and we no longer really seek after Him, then we're going to miss out on the perfect power and the purpose He's given us in this life. We're going to miss out on the fullness that He has for us. To live in freedom and to walk in purpose is to be in the presence of our Lord through the power of his Holy Spirit. We don't allow our problems to overshadow our purpose. We stay true to our testimony that the world may know the the goodness of God, the grace and the love of God. And we desire him every single day like a blind man would desire to see. Heavenly Father, we stand and we sit in your presence. God, if there be anybody here today, Lord, that has not received you. Lord, like the guy asked you in John, what is it that we must do to do the works of God? Lord, your response where the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So Lord God, this morning we believe. We receive you in faith. We admit that we depend upon you. We admit that we can do nothing on our own behalf, that we have no power, no strength, no authority in this world that doesn't come from you. Lord I pray for every Christian in the room Lord God I pray that you would renew a steadfast spirit within them that you would renew God give them a fresh sense of purpose that in these difficult times in these challenging seasons of life throughout these problems that we face as a world right now God that we would find our purpose to help minister to the needs of those around us to be identified with the things that you have for us Jesus I I know I'm messed up I know I'm broken But, oh God, it's by your grace. Your grace is sufficient. Your strength is made perfect in our weaknesses, Lord. And may we demonstrate to the world that we're not a perfect people, but we serve a perfect God. That we don't have it all together, but you make us new every morning. Lord, I thank you for the opportunity to be together. I thank you for your people. I pray you would encourage and renew and inspire your people to walk closely with you, to seek after you. Because we know, Lord God, you see us. God, you act on our behalf. You pursue us and you reveal yourself to us. God, you are faithful. We love you. We thank you for our time together today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much for being here. Pastor Scott is going to have an announcement for us and have our benediction. We hope you have a great week.
1: Thank you, BJ. We do have an exciting uh, matter of business to conduct. We have... Steve and Debbie Salucci—they're going to be joining our church by membership uh, from a a Southern Baptist Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. If you're a a member with us, we always vote our new members in. And so, if you join me, would you raise your hand and say "Amen" to welcome David—I mean uh, Debbie and Steve—into the life of our church? Let's do that together. Amen. All right. Well, let's when. Things get back to normal, be sure and welcome Debbie and Steve into the life of our church and and extend a a greeting to them for our benediction today. We have in Second Thessalonians chapter three, verse sixteen. Now may the Lord of peace himself continually grant you peace in every circumstance, and the Lord be with you all. And God's people said, Amen. You're dismissed.